Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 855 with Stephanie Robson. She's back for another three-part workshop, this time on kitchen design and layout. Well, because when you're talking about designing a kitchen, you've gone past the who's your audience. You figured out your concept. You've done your math. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and make this thing real. And if you plan it right, If you go straight ahead, you'll be successful. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Pop Menu gives restaurant owners the tools they need to transform their online presence, simplify their ordering and delivery, and take control of their marketing. Pop Menu will build your restaurant a website that is designed to engage guests, showcase your menu with featured photos and reviews, and allow you to ditch those boring PDFs. But Pop Menu is so much more than an online menu. Each Pop Menu site is built with in-house delivery options to open up more revenue streams and to meet guests where they want to eat. And you can easily set up curbside pickup and contactless ordering. And Pop Menu's remarketing tools enable you to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. Trust me, with Pop Menu, you will take your restaurant to the next level. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month Plus, lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. One more time, popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and Talk to the Manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that Talk to the Manager provides. Also, with Talk to the Manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. 
What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. We have Stephanie Robson coming back on the show. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she joined us not too long ago, only about 30 episodes ago. She first came on the show, episodes 820, 822, and 824. It was a three-part workshop on business planning, and she killed it. Uh, it's, I mean, it was such a great workshop, a series of workshops that I knew I was going to go back to her eventually, and I didn't realize... I'd go back to her so soon, but in the network, I'm constantly probing my, my members saying, what do you guys want to learn? Where's the pain? Where's the frustration? Where do you feel lost? Let me go to work for you. I don't have all the answers, but I know most of the people who do. Let's get them on the show. And one of the hot spots, one of the topics that people really wanted to talk about was kitchen design and layout. And if this is the first time you're opening a restaurant and you've never designed a restaurant kitchen before. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things you just don't consider. You don't know until you know. So what we'll be doing today and over the next two workshops is covering kitchen design. Today, we're talking about where to start. That's part one. Part two is going to be the things you don't know until you know. Layout top tips, the tricks that Stephanie's learned over an entire career of doing this. And then lastly, we're going to be talking about equipment in part three. And uh, we record all these workshops uh, live in the network. So if you find value in today's episode and you want to be a part of the, the conversation going forward, maybe you're opening your restaurant and maybe you have tons of questions about equipment, layout, uh, concerns you might have about the, sp- the physical space that you're working with specifically. I'm telling you, this is a workshop you want to be a part of. Stephanie is great. And because I want you guys to be a part of these conversations, because I, I don't want you to feel like you, you, you're missing out. If you email me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, I will give you a link for a 30 day trial to the network. So you can get in there. You can be a part of this conversation. Uh, and you can ask the questions you need to ask. It, and there's a few things happening this month that you'll get to be a part of if you if you sign up and be a part of the network and join us for these workshops. But you're in for a treat. Uh, Stephanie kills it. She's really well-spoken. Uh, so with no further ado, here it is. Stephanie Robson, Kitchen Design and Layout, Part 1. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you back on the show, technically for a fourth time emeritus fac emeritus faculty of the hotel school of cornell university stephanie robson stephanie are you feeling unstoppable today incredibly unstoppable because that's how you start every year yes like i mentioned this is this is stephanie's second time on the show she was episodes well i should say fourth time second workshop fourth appearance and if you want to check out our part our first uh collaboration, we did a deep dive into the world of business planning. It's episodes 820, 822, and 824. Today, we're going to be talking about kitchen design and the layout. And the reason why we're having this conversation is because this is what people in the network uh, were asking for. And And I want to remind you that I'm here to go to work for you. So let me know what you want to know. I'll find somebody. I have a an amazing network. Stephanie is an example of that. And we'll dive deep into the subjects for you. Uh, Before we dive into that subject of kitchen design and layout, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. And the last time you were on the show, you said, know who you are, know who you're talking to and what they care about. But I know you have a new mantra today and I'm really excited for it. What is that? I do. It's be sure you are right, then full steam ahead. 
Be sure you are right, then full steam ahead. Why did you pick that quote today? Well, because when you're talking about designing a kitchen, you've gone past the who's your audience. You figured out your concept. You've done your math. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and make this thing real. And if you plan it right, if you go straight ahead, you'll be successful. I love that. And I can't help but notice that when there's, there's advice all over the place. And sometimes you hear things like just start. And then other times you say plan, 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 and then go. How do you find that balance in your opinion? I think the just start is really helpful when you're what we'll call ideating. That's a, that's a good Cornell word, right? You're coming up with ideas and you're exploring and you're collecting information. And yeah, that, that is where you should be throwing everything you can in the bucket. But once you start being in a position where you have to spend money, <laughs> I think planning is crucial because we all know there's not that much capital to be had when you're starting up a restaurant. So you got to plan extremely well so that you're not wasting money or time or your valuable energy. You don't get a lot of redos in this industry. Uh, not often. No, <laughs> unless you married well. Yeah. Uh, right. But uh, no. number one, kitchen design and layout. Marry well. Very well. Very well and get a very tough skin. Yes. So you, I remember and the reason why I went to you specifically for today's topic is because I remember you saying that like you geek out hard on kitchen design and layout. This is like one of the things that you love the most. And that, I, that just stuck with me. And when somebody in the network asked for a, a presentation on this, I, I came straight to you. So why is it that you love kitchen design and layout so much? What is it about this part of all that you do that really excites you? Well, this is where I started my career, Eric. So when I graduated from college, I got hired as a commercial kitchen designer. So I spent the first five or six years of my career drawing stainless steel details and selecting equipment and stomping around job sites. And when you're doing something you can put your hands on, I think that's why a lot of people go into the restaurant industry, right? They love the fact that it's real as opposed to just symbol manipulation. So I loved the fact that it was real and you worked with people and it was a team effort, but it was also really concrete. Um, and I just find it fascinating. It's like a puzzle, a puzzle with a time clock and a checkbook. <laughs> so those things together, I just float my boat. So today our focus, so like I mentioned, this is a three-part workshop. Our focus today is where do you start? So we're kind of taking the big picture. Where do you start? And I'm just going to let you kind of get right into it. Sure. So I got quite a bit of material. I mean, we talk about three-parter. I could spend months talking about this, but I'm going to try to give you kind of the, the highlights. And the first highlight is to figure out exactly what you want this kitchen to be able to do before you start planning it in any detail. And that sounds like a no-brainer, right? But, you know, we think about a kitchen is this kind of funny balance between art Right. This is where you're being creative. And especially if you're coming up with a concept where you're developing new menu items or trying new ideas, whether it's new food or new ways of executing that food or servicing or serving it. So you've got the art piece. You've got the science piece, because let's face it, a kitchen is a lab. Right. This is where you are applying the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry to food. And you've got biology in there too, right? We're thinking about what's happening with bacteria or you're, maybe what you're thinking about even with, if you're talking about seafood, maybe even viruses. So I know that's a dirty word right now. Um, and then you've got economics, right? So there's your three subjects, art, science, and economics that you're trying to balance in a kitchen. So you start off with what kind of kitchen is this? What do you want it to be able to do? 
Got it. And I want to remind our uh, attendees today that uh, if you have questions, I highly encourage you to throw your questions in the comment section. And what we'll do is we'll come back and answer your questions at the very end. But I know it's hard to hang on to questions sometimes. So just a reminder to encourage you to, to store your questions in the comment section. Maybe I can get around and ask them while we're going. Uh, so, okay, back to that. The, the three parts when, when thinking the big picture, there's the art element, there's the science element, and then there's the economics. Take it from right. there. Right. So within that, we've got really kind of two kinds of kitchen. And the, the one kind that a lot of restaurateurs are looking for is what I'll call an artisan kitchen. In other words, this is a space where you can change up the menu, change up what you're producing, depending on the season or depending what shows up at the back door or depending on just what happens in your brain that day. That's a really different kind of kitchen compared to what I'll call a production kitchen, which is if you're a bakery or you're doing large catering operations or you're you know, doing something where you're doing high volume, we design those really differently because you've got different equipment, you've got different numbers of people working in those kitchens, and you probably have a very different financial structure. So what kind of kitchen is this? Probably artisan. Um, and then you start thinking about what do I want this kitchen to be able to do? And by that, I mean, am I doing service on site as well as for delivery? Am I doing catering as well as feeding people here? Am I doing pop-ups, right? Or am I doing uh, take-home full format meals? What am I trying to do in this kitchen? And I'm going to actually stop you right there because I, you pulled up two questions. I had questions I wrote down at the very bottom. I was going to get around to them at the end. But since you're bringing them to the conversation now, uh, a hot topic in the conversations I've been having with, with delivery being such a popular topic right now and people really leaning on delivery to just sustain their business, where do you lay or where, where, where are your thoughts on designing a restaurant to have two separate lines, one for in-house and one for delivery? Should you have a whole separate location for that? What are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. <laughs> I'm going to give you my answer to everything, which is it depends, right? Yeah. If, if you are cooking using ventilation, you know, you're doing hot food prep, that's a really expensive thing to build. The line with the ventilation on top, pricey and complicated. So if your model is to crank a lot of food out uh, for delivery, Sometimes using the same line, but having dual sort of what I'd call uh, chef's tables or prep stations so that the food that's going to delivery goes one direction and food going to the line or to the restaurant itself goes another direction. If you're really high volume, having a separate facility might make sense for you, but it, there's no one answer to that one. Um, I have a, a former student of mine who has a chain of salad restaurants and for him, because it's salad, right? They're not doing much cooking. He has two completely separate lines. Um, then you might see something like what uh, the, the chain Dig In. I don't know if you're familiar with Dig In. They have one line, but they have two places where the food ends up. And one of them is for assembly for delivery. And another one is for assembly to go out to guests who are actually in the restaurant. I, I am aware of Diggin, and ironically, I was supposed to be in New York City next week to interview Diggin. So... Uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stick that in my back pocket to pull back the layers. Uh, you also mentioned pop-ups. Um, are you seeing people take into consideration pop-ups when designing restaurants and why, what's the benefit of, of, of that? What a lot of people are finding is, you know, building out a kitchen is expensive and paying rent on the space is expensive. And if you are a dinner only concept or a breakfast and lunch only concept, you've got that space 24 seven. 
And so allowing that space to be utilized by somebody else as an additional revenue stream um, is starting to look more attractive to a lot of places. And so, okay, well, how do you design your kitchen when some of the time that kitchen is being used for a completely different concept? And it might be a concept that changes over time. Um, guest chefs, and you know, there are places that have tried to use that as a business model. I don't know how well that works. But there are all these elements that go into how much space do I need and what equipment do I need and how do I lay this out? So deciding all this stuff ahead of time as best you can is going to make things a lot easier for you as you go along. All right. Thank you for entertaining my questions. If you can get back on track or go for it. Sure. Sure. No problem. So when you try to figure out what a kitchen you want, we, we call it programming, right? And so if you talk about programming a computer, you think about programming as making a list of instructions for the computer, right? You know, do this, do that, do this. It's the same thing with designing your kitchen. And by the way, designing anything. You start off with, you know, what do you want this space to be able to do? When is it going to happen? Who's going to do it? And those sort of thought processes help you start to make a list of the kinds of features you're going to need. And I say features because it's not always just about equipment. Um, let me give you an example. You might say, well, we're planning on doing a lot of act- or a lot of um, outdoor dining, right? In season, we're going to have this big patio and we want to have tons and tons of people out in the patio having a great time. And, and maybe we'll put some fire pits out there to extend the season. But there'll be a chunk of the year that we just won't use that. So I need to think about, okay, during those peak periods, I'm going to get a lot more food coming in. So I need more refrigeration. I need more dry storage. I need more serviceware, but I don't need it all year. So is there a sort of a flexible model I might need? There's there's no one answer to that question either, but programming helps you think through what do I need to do? When do I need to do it? And then the who part helps you think through how many people are going to be working in this kitchen, because that's also going to influence how much space you need. So programming is a really nice way of kind of my dog just joining us for today. That's great. Is that in disagreement or agreement? I think it was agreement. Right? <laughs> oh, she's always in agreement. She's very good that way. But you always want to start with how do I want this facility to run? And you start making a list. What I have people do if I'm working with a client or working with students is I have them write me a program document and they hate it, but it's a really great exercise because by writing out what you want this space to be able to do, it triggers things in your mind, but also you have to communicate it to somebody else. And that's really key because you're not going to be designing your own kitchen. If you think you are, put your hand in the air and slap it because you don't want to be doing that. That's what you should bring in professionals for. Now, we can talk later about which professionals and do you pay them or do you not, because there's a way around having to spend a lot of money on this. But actual kitchen layout, there's a real science to it. And there's a lot of uh, codes you have to comply to. And so you don't want to say to yourself, I'm going to lay out my whole kitchen and save some money. What you want to be able to do is give instructions to the person who is going to lay it out. And that's where the program is so great because you said, here's what I want this space to be able to do. Now you've got something you can hold your designer accountable to. Yeah. So, one, some of the thoughts that come to mind, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Things that I, I've heard in, in my past is if you can't, like a lot of people say, I can't afford to, to get somebody in here to do that. But I think it's really important to kind of change that perspective and say, and ask yourself, can I afford not to have somebody come in here and do this? Because you might end up making way more expenses for yourself by doing things wrong or not taking certain things into consideration and having to do it all over again. And then things start to add up. Do you want to reflect on that? 
That is very true. And I will tell you one other thing, Eric, is depending on how big your kitchen is, you may not have to hire anybody at all. A lot of kitchen equipment dealers will provide layout services as part of what you spend money on when you buy the equipment. They will not charge you for that service. Now, I need to be clear, they make their money somehow and it's in the equipment that you buy. So you need to be very careful that they are not overselling you stuff. And that's something we're going to be talking about in our third workshop in this series, which is how do you select equipment? How do you know what you need so that you don't be in a situation where the the dealer is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you need this you know, $35,000 combi oven steamer. And you're like, no, I don't. But back to your, your point about hiring someone. Yes, you can pay a commercial kitchen designer. Uh, but for a first restaurant, especially if it's small, I don't think that's a good use of your money. And I say that as a professional kitchen designer, have your kitchen equipment dealer lay it out for you. They know the codes. They know the local situation. They even know what the local health inspector cares about the most. So that goes back to my previous mantra, which is know your audience and what they care about. And they usually will provide that service free of charge because it's in their interest to create a great relationship with you as a, as a customer so that when you grow, they grow with you. Awesome. What was your train of thought before I pulled back a layer on what you were saying? Oh, I have no idea what my train of thought was. <laughs> I will say the whole idea of programming kind of reminds me of one of those seven habits of highly effective people. Start with the end in mind and reverse engineer it. Absolutely. And the more detail you can put in it, I was mentioning that I, I use this as an exercise for students. And one of the things that we do is say, okay, as a, as a practice, let's talk about wine storage. Write me a program for the wine storage in your restaurant. And they look at me like it's a room. I'm like, no, no, no. Think about wine, right? If wine is important to you in your concept, temperature is going to be important. So what temperature does that room need to be at? Um, light is going to be important because wine is not happy if it's got bright light shining on it all the time. Vibration can be a problem. If you have really high-end red wines with sediment, vibration is not their friend, right? So if you're designing a restaurant that has a very uh, involved wine program, you're going to need to tell your designer all these features that the wine storage has to have. Now, extend that over the entire restaurant, the entire kitchen. You know, are you going to be doing your own um, uh, baking? Are you doing any baking at all? And if so, is it yeast or is it pastry? That's going to mean different things for different equipment. Um, same thing with refrigeration. Are you getting stuff from the farmer? Has it still got dirt on it? Or is everything coming from the, the, the truck from the distributor just backs up and disgorges everything into your walk-in? Those are all going to influence your kitchen. So this programming process, it sounds tedious. Trust me, it is so valuable. And it will save you a lot of time, energy, and aggravation when it comes time to actually select your equipment and make sure you have a good layout. So I think we've covered a lot of what we were trying to do today in regards to the laying out the big picture and first asking what kind of kitchen are you going to be doing and why? Am I, do we, am I, are we missing anything in regards to those two bullet points or do you want to move forward? I think we can move along. I mean, I, I could talk all day about this process, but I think in the interest of giving you kind of a good overview today and then later on when we talk about details and design, we can get into some of the nitty gritty. Um, what I'd like to sort of move on to then is, okay, you figured out what kind of kitchen this is and what you want to be able to do. How big should it be? Um, and there are some rules of thumb, but rules of thumb are just that, right? They depend on the situation. But I will tell you, too big is a problem and too small is a problem. So we're looking for the Goldilocks. 
Okay. I think that's a good teaser. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We are back and we're just talking about, or you, you kind of give us a teaser. How big is too big? Or how do you decide to determine the size of your kitchen? Okay. So there is kind of a sweet spot. You want your kitchen, and I'm going to actually extend this. I'm going to say kitchen plus the rest of your back of house. So back of house is anywhere the guest doesn't really go. So it's your kitchen, storage areas, maybe an office, maybe it's an employee break room or or a locker room or restroom that's just for employees as opposed to a shared one with guests. All of that together, we're going to call back of house. And that total amount should be no less than 30% of your total space that you're leasing and no more than 50%. So again, the sweet spot is between 30 and 50% of your total space. Now, I hear you screaming because you're like, 50%? Is that insane? 50% is when you are one of two things. You are either a very high-end fine dining restaurant. I'm going to use the example of per se, right? You have enormous back of house because you have enormous numbers of people working back there. You have an enormous amount of uh, serviceware, and you're taking care of probably, I don't know, 200 ingredients in a given night. So you need a lot of space. So that's a very high-end restaurant. At the other end of the spectrum, you need about half your space dedicated to kitchen. If you are a fast food restaurant and you don't have much seating. Now, there are restaurants that have no seating at all. If you're talking about delivery only, then all of this goes out the window and 100% of your space is back of house. But generally, that 30% to 50% is kind of the range. And if you are a full service restaurant, in other words, people are sitting down and a server comes over and, you know, do the whole sort of classic full service, it's about two thirds front of house, one third back of house. So 66% public space, 33 or 34% back of house. And listening to you say this, I have, I do recount people mentioning in the past that a lot of people, uh, when they're designing their space, they don't they 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 make the kitchen way too big, and that limits the amount of revenue you can 
make off of that space because it's all about butts and seats. Well, when I say that, what goes through your head? Absolutely. The bigger the kitchen. So yes, it, you are cutting into your seating capacity if seating is important for your concept. But there's a couple other things going on. A bigger kitchen costs more to run because that space is, is using utilities. Um, you have to clean it. Uh, if you have a big kitchen, you tend to have more stuff in corners. You might notice this in places you live. If you have a big house, you think, oh, I'll never fill this house with stuff. Oh, yes, you will. Right. And so if your kitchen's too big, you start accumulating stuff you don't need back there. So too big is costing you money and it becomes a bit of a dump. Too small and you're introducing all kinds of potential problems, right? Injury because people are on top of each other. You can't store the items that you need to. And so you end up storing things in places that's not practical or even safe, or you just can't execute the things you want to do because you just don't have the room. You can't do the prep or you can't have the inventory. Maybe this, I'm I'm playing devil's advocate now, um, but I've noticed lately there's a lot of, uh, when it comes to HR and and, and human relations, and I've noticed recently there's a lot of people who don't feel comfortable working in small spaces, tight spaces, where you're forced to bump into to each other uh, in tight spaces, getting by each other. Is that something that's coming up into conversation now? Actually, like leaving enough space where people feel like they're in safe space? Is that, has it As- gone? Right? Absolutely. It's not, and it, it's not even just feeling. There's actually requirements about how much space you need to have per employee if you're going to meet code. Um, so there are many restaurants, I'm sure many of you have, have been in them where the kitchen is way too small. And if someone came and inspected it, there'd be a problem. So yeah, you want to make sure you're designing a kitchen that is safe. And one thing it's safe is not having to scooch past someone while carrying something hot or something sharp, which is what we do pretty much all and the time. Let's be honest, not everybody wants to be butts to nuts with everybody every day. It's just not conducive with a professional workspace. Not at all. Not at all. And, and, but you know, this is a really important point because again, restaurateurs, we are usually running on a shoestring. And so a lot of places will make the kitchen too small and say, I just need more front of house space. I just need more seats out front. But let's face it. If your kitchen doesn't work, you can have as many seats out front as you want and you won't be able to serve them. And so guests will come once and they'll have a rotten experience and they'll leave. So it's in your interest to not undersize that kitchen and try to say, oh, I'm just going to get more seats. You're going to end up with more problems. So back to that kind of sweet spot. Most of the time, if I see a kitchen that is or a whole back of house, which is less than about 30% of the total space in the building, I'm concerned because, and we've all worked in places where it's too small, um, but I like that 30 to 50 range. So uh, we might be talking about this later and feel free to deflect my question if you're going to touch on this later. What about people using, being creative with the space and having space that has multiple purposes? Like, you know, there's a space that when you get there, it's all for prep, but then you can flip that space and use it as a line later on. Like, am I, am I getting ahead of you? I don't want to. No, you, know, you, you, you are giving us a wonderful teaser for our next workshop, but you're exactly right, which is we, you think about space. And actually, this is a nice segue to what I'll call the basic principles of kitchen design, right? So you just hit on one of them, which is space and time work together. 
<laughs> and we mentioned a, little ago, or a moment ago when I was talking about figuring out what you want your kitchen to be able to do because it's a 24-7 space. So you start thinking critically about, well, if I'm only using this part of the kitchen for prep in the morning and the rest of the time it just sits there, that's not a very efficient use of your resources. So you start thinking about, okay, what can I do to make good use of that space for as much time as possible without running into the, how, what was the charming phrase you used? Butts and nuts or something. <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is where having someone who is an experienced designer will help you because they understand that you have to get the food out. They understand that you are paying these employees out of the revenues that you're making but they also understand the, the tricks of how do you, for example, throw a sheet pan on top of the range in the morning when the range isn't working and that becomes prep space. And then when you need to fire up the range for service, the sheet pan comes off and your prep stuff is all in your reach and refrigerators or your drawers. And now you can start actually getting stuff out the door for service. So there are all these tricks of the trade. And when we talk about planning parts of the kitchen in more detail in our next workshop, I'll talk about some of those. But yeah, you're exactly right. You want to think about space and time together. Got it. Okay. Back on track if you can get back to where I pulled you off of your train of thought. Well, I want to talk about space a little bit more just for a second, because for first-time restaurateurs, usually, in fact, I would say 99.9% of the time, you are not building your restaurant in a purpose-built building. You're not creating an Applebee's out in a parking lot somewhere. You're taking over existing space that may or may not already be a restaurant, but you're taking over an existing building and building it out to your needs, right? So there is this idea of net space and gross space. And I'm going to bring this up because when you are talking to your landlord and you're working out your rent, they are charging you rent for what's called gross space. In other words, it's the, the, the surface area of the space that you're leasing. Sounds sensible. But when you're actually designing it, there is space inside that that you cannot use. Let me give you an example. Space in front of a doorway right? That you can't put anything in front of a door because you've got to be able to get through the door. And if it's a fire door, there are rules about what you can put where. You may have structural columns running through your kitchen, right? They're holding the building up. Obviously, you can't use that space. You're paying for it in your lease, but you can't actually use it. Um, staircases. A lot of people say, oh, it's great. You know, I'm getting this restaurant lease and there's a basement and this is awesome. I'm going to put all my storage in the basement. This is great. Well, there's a couple of things to think about with that. One is that basement, if you're going up and down those stairs all the time, that's not very efficient. And it also introduces some potential for injury and blah, blah, blah. We can talk about that later. But that staircase is space you are paying for that you can't use for either storage or prep or production. So we talk about this idea of gross space is how much you're paying for and net is what you can actually use. And in an older building, generally that ratio is higher. In other words, it's less favorable. You have more gross space. We're always going to have more gross space, but the proportion of gross space is higher because you've got structure and usually there's staircases and there might be some weird stuff going on with building systems. So you don't have as efficient a floor plan. So the, the question that naturally comes up is if you're looking at a, a space and they're like, oh, this is... 1,800 square feet, the question you should ask is, is that gross or net? Yes. 
Yes. And they'll always say, oh, but the thing to do is measure it yourself. When you're looking at a space, you always go with a buddy, always, always. And especially if you're a woman, just saying, um, and measure it yourself and measure those things that you cannot actually use, the columns, staircases, spaces in front of doorways. You'll still have to pay for that. The landlord is not going to say, oh, yeah, I'll lop that off your rent because you can't use it. But the more of that kind of space there is in the facility you're looking at, the more difficult it's going to be to lay it out or the more, more costly it's going to be to you. So just yeah. recognize there's that element that we have to think about. You suggested that if you're a woman, you should definitely go with somebody else. Being a man, I'm kind of naive. What, what, what are the things that aren't so obvious that why some of our female listeners, why should that be the case? Oh boy, how much time have you got? Because you don't want to be in a space alone with somebody? Is that? That's part of it. That's part of it. I mean, you always want to go with somebody else because there are things that two sets of eyes might notice. If you're going by yourself, there's only so many things you can pay attention to. And it's nice to have someone walking around just taking pictures and shooting video and making notes. Um, if you're with, uh, if you're a woman, there's, the issue of safety, I hate to say it, but there's issue of safety. And there's also an issue, which is, how do I put this delicately? Um, a lot of people in the industry don't think women know very much, which is stupid because let's face it. You're proving people, all those people, people wrong right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've walked onto job sites and people have assumed because I'm female, I don't know anything. And it's, it doesn't mean you have to bring a man with you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, bring someone else with you. And that tends to be tempered a little bit. It's funny. Um, but I've noticed that when I go with another person, whatever their gender might be, um, I don't have that problem. It's good to have a witness. It is. It is. And when you're looking at spaces, again, there's just so much to, to look at. So often when I'm helping somebody with their projects, I will just go with them to look at the site and I won't say anything. I'm just walking around, taking pictures, taking notes, shooting video. And I'm looking at things that they may not be because I'm a geek and I'm looking at things like how big is the gas manifold coming out of the wall in the kitchen, you know, stupid things like that, that are going to be very helpful to you later on. So that's a bit of a sidetrack. Is that a teaser for a later workshop? If I say gas manifold, no one will come back. (laughs) <laughs> no, but that, that, like, and again, I know this is a three-part series, so we're going to be kind of looking at the big picture stuff today. I'm going to have questions. If I'm asking questions that are things that you intend to address later on, just let us know. We can shelf them. Uh, but like, what are the things you're looking for aside from like, are you like, what are the key elements? I mean, I'm I'm sure this might be something that you, you're looking to get into later on. So feel free well, to. Some of it is, but you know, some of the stuff I'm looking for is how sound is the building, and by that I mean, are the floors in good shape? Not just what they look like, but for example, this is this is crazy, but I'll always go to inspect a site, and I will bring with me two things. Well, I'll bring my phone, right, so I can shoot video and take pictures. I will bring a magnet, and I will bring a piece of reinforcing bar, you know, we call it rebar steel about a foot and a half long. And that's not to defend myself. Um, I don't want to give the impression that this is a dangerous thing to do, but the rebar is really helpful because I tap the floor with it. I'm, I'm listening for possible rot. Um, I'll go into the restrooms and <laughs> no, don't get the wrong idea about this one either, but I'll go in the restroom and I will jump up and down on the floor around any fixture like the toilets, because if there's been leaks, 
the the floor will be soft or be honest, when, you go, when you go out to eat in restaurants are you in there jumping on the floor just because you're curious <laughs> no no i am not and but i will tell you that i I have to go to restaurants with people who get it because I am just, I can't stop looking around at things when I'm in restaurants. And, and uh, it's a reason I'm single actually. <laughs> go out to dinner with Stephanie and you hear thumping going on. It's, it. She's checking for all kinds <laughs> of stuff, but I'm looking for the, the, you know, is the floor in good shape? I'm looking for or, um, evidence of leaks in the ceiling or in the walls. I'm looking for, you know, what's the condition of the ventilation hood if there is one there. Um, I'm looking for, is there evidence of vermin? Uh, all that kind of stuff, which is going to add to your costs when it comes time for you to build it out the way you want it. Awesome. Uh, so keep going. Uh, you're doing great. I mean, right, the last thing we mentioned is what to bring with you. Um, phone magnet and your rebarb steel pole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for the floor. The magnet is if it's a restaurant. Don't bother bringing the magnet if it's not a restaurant that you're looking at. But if it's a restaurant already, the magnet is to check to see if the tabling is actually stainless steel. So if you are buying or taking over a restaurant and part of your lease includes the equipment or you are you know, buying the equipment as a package. And when we talk about equipment selection and purchase in our third workshop, I'll get into this more. But true stainless steel is not magnetic. A magnet will not stick to it. So if I bring a little, just a little magnet like you find you have in a fridge, it can be a goofy one that has a saying on it or something. That's fine. And I'll just slap it on a prep table. And there are a few places it might stick because there's usually galvanized steel structure in those tables. But if I just go to a prep table and slap this magnet on it and it sticks, it tells me it's not true commercial grade stainless. And so I don't want to pay commercial grade stainless prices for it. Same thing with shelving. You know, people say, oh, stainless steel shelving. By the way, you do not want stainless steel shelving. Just saying it's too expensive. Why not? Okay. It's really costly. I mean, that's what you put in a hospital. Um, but, uh, so don't let your dealer sell you that. But again, if you put a magnet on it, it doesn't stick. It's not stainless steel. Awesome. Any other tricks before we move on? Uh, there's so many, but I think I'll stop there. <laughs> I, I can see the looks of face, people's faces that I'm talking about, you know, rot and, and, uh, and well, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned your phone. Um, I didn't mention, uh, is it kind of just common sense to bring uh, a tape measure or are you using your phone nowadays to do that? Well, I don't use my phone personally for doing that, but you can. A tape measure is great. Um, uh, another thing, I'm just trying to think what else would be in my kit. Um, I mean, on my shelf, I don't know if you can see it. I have a sound meter and I have a light meter. Uh, you know, depending on what it is, I might bring those with me, but you can get those on your phone now too. So um, I'm kind of old fashioned, so I still use old tools. But yeah, you know, who knows what you're going to need to measure. I envision you walking in like Batwoman with your utility belts and like all these things that you, you pull out to. But yeah. yeah, a site visit is it is a you're going on a what could be a construction site. So you're going to bring and wear don't wear shoes that you care about. You know, wear something that you don't care if they get disgusting. So I mean, we. Are covering a lot today, and I don't really know where we are on your list of things you want. <laughs> we're over here, Eric. Well, I had this listed. We're over here, but that's I don't okay. Want to keep you on track. So, move over to thirty thousand feet and touch on the things we have not discussed yet that you're looking to get into, and then we can kind of get back in our helicopter. 
<laughs> well, I want to talk about sort of the basic principles. So we've been sort of talking about size, and that's a function of what you want this kitchen to be able to do. So you've got sort of down to, okay, now I know how much size I think I need. And there are formulas for that. Um, but in terms of how you design a kitchen, there's really four things that you need to think about. The first one is what I'll call the principle of forward flow. And all that means is you want goods, by that I mean ingredients, as well as, you know, if you've got um, linens or garbage, all those things are considered goods. But you want those goods to move forward through the kitchen. Let me explain what I mean by that. So if you think about restaurants receive ingredients at the back door or maybe by the front door, but they get delivered, they get stored, then you work with them. And some of that work might be doing, you know, rough prep or mise en place. And then you cook the item or you assemble the item and then you serve the item to somebody and you have stuff that comes back from that process, right? Dirty dishes, dirty pots and pans, all that kind of stuff. So far, so good. Out the front door. Yeah. If you have a back door, sometimes it comes in the front door and goes back (laughs) out the front door. But this principle of forward flow is that sequence, which is, Receiving, storage, prep, which is getting stuff ready to work with, so mise en place, production, which is you're actually making the food or assembling the item, service, and cleanup, right? That's your your path. And a good kitchen design has that path with as few backtracks and bottlenecks as possible. So goods come in. They should eat, go right into storage. You shouldn't have to like troop through the whole kitchen to find storage. From storage, those goods should come straight out to where you're going to be working with them for prep, production, or uh, prep, mise en place. And from there to production without backtracking. And then from production to service without backtracking. So this principle of forward flow helps you sort of think through, okay, how do I want stuff to move through the kitchen? And if it has to go back and forth a lot between, say, a walk-in and where you're working with it and then back in the walk-in, you might say, hmm, maybe I need some refrigeration that isn't the walk-in. Maybe I need some under-counter refrigeration, low boys, we often call them, where that those prepped items can be closer to where I need them next rather than people having to go back to the walk-in to get things. So give me an example of some of the more un or less obvious uh, situations where you might get reverse flow that we might not take. Like you shared one with you prep uh, and then you have to bring it back to the walk-in and then bring it back to the line. Maybe you should have a low boy to, to avoid that back and forth, but wh- what else? Another classic one is pot washing. So, you know, you're working with in the kitchen, you've got all kinds of materials you're using while you're preparing food and somewhere you have a pot sink. And then those clean pots need to go back to where you're going to use them next, right? So usually it's a circle of some sort. And a lot of the time, the pot sink is where your dishwashing is, which is sensible, right? It makes sense to put all that yucky, gooey stuff in the same part of the kitchen. But if you haven't thought about how those pots and pans are going to move and where they're going to live when they're clean and where they're going to live when they're dirty, you can end up with backtracking or sort of weird paths to, oh, I, I need a, a bunch of sheet pans. I'm a bakery. Those sheet pans should be something I can just grab wherever I'm working because they're so important to what I'm doing. Those little details, that's part of forward flow as well. It's not just about the food. So the, the, big, one, the big takeaway is the 
end cycle is when it's clean, it goes back to where it's going to be used again. So you don't have to go get it when you need it. Exactly. Ideally. Now that's, that's in a perfect world. We all know there'll be some things that you don't use all the time. So you got to go get it. But a lot of people don't think about storing utensils and, and what we call uh, small wares. That's a term that industry uses for anything that goes through a dishwasher or could go through a dishwasher. We call small wares. So everything from sheet pans and hotel pans to measuring spoons and ladles and, and the service where you use out front. So whether that's glassware, silverware, plates, all that good stuff is called small wares. And a lot of people forget that they need those things um, when they lay out a kitchen and those things have a place to live when they're clean and when they're dirty. Um, and how are you going to move stuff? Yeah. And you actually bring up one uh, topic that was recent that came to mind recently uh, I was having a conversation outside of the podcast, but I was telling somebody that they should come hang out and join us for this workshop. And they had mentioned, you know, one thing I wish I thought of when I, when I bought the space is the, the dish pit is in plain sight. Like if you're at the counter, you can look back and sometimes on a Friday night, uh, you know, things stack up and it does not look good. Like the, the consumer, your guest does not need to see a pile of dirty pans behind your 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 line your workstation right it's a pizza place specifically so it's kind of like wide open but you can see these like what what about things like that things that you want out of sight absolutely and this is why if you have an open kitchen you need a bigger kitchen so getting back to sizes and getting back to what kind of kitchen do you want if you have an open kitchen in other words you want guests to see you preparing the food you want just guests to see the sexy stuff Right. You want them to see, you know, preparing fresh food and finishing things off on the line and assembling and, you know, using your tweezers to place the chive, whatever it is you're doing. That's fun. And people find that interesting. Generally, people don't find meat cutting interesting unless you're a real geek like me. Um, <laughs> they, they don't find wear washing interesting at all. I say wear washing the dish pit. You know, there's so many terms we use for it. Um, there are some parts of the kitchen that uh, you may not want the guests to see. And that means that if you have an open kitchen, you're going to need more space because some of those functions will be duplicated. You'll have, for example, things like hand sinks. If you have an open kitchen, you'll need sinks, hand sinks where you're producing the food, but you'll need a second set in the back where the things that you don't want the guests to see are located. So that just takes more space. So I always tell people with an open kitchen, add another 10 to 12% to your total kitchen space just to accommodate it. Great advice. Uh, so back to the top of the bullet point, we were, we're talking right now about basic principles for a good kitchen. And you mentioned forward flow. Uh, you want things to go from the receiving to the storage, to the prep, to the production, to the service, and then clean up. Uh, what else? Well, as- one thing yeah, one thing to know about forward flow, that doesn't mean it has to be a straight line. I want to make that really clear because some people think, oh, you know, if it has that process, I must put these things in that order. And not necessarily. As long as Things don't, aren't backtracking very much. When I say things, I mean, again, goods, you know, food or waste is another one. You think about garbage. Where are you generating garbage in a kitchen? At the dish pit, in prep, and hopefully that's it. If you're generating a lot of garbage on the line, you have a problem, <laughs> right? There's, there's something going on there that you don't want. But generally, you're, most of your waste is coming from those two locations. So you don't want the waste having to go through the entire kitchen to get out the back door as well. So we think about what's the relationship of the dish pit and prep to where the waste has to go. Um, so I'm always sort of guiding people. A really good trick is 
when you visit a restaurant that you admire is in your mind, map the path, you know, say, okay, I'm a potato. Where do I come in? Where do I go? Where am I stored? Where? And that helps you start to see a well-planned kitchen. I, you know, a, a potato is a great thing to use um, because often, not always, but often we we get those in in bulk and we prep them and then we cook them somewhere else. So it, they go through that whole sequence. Um, another one is a keg of beer or a bottle of wine. What's that path? Where does it come in? How does it get handled? Where does it get served? All of these kinds of things are really useful tools to build your, your sensitivity to forward flow. Okay. So right now we're on the, the, under the topic of basic principles, you just covered the sub the subtopic of forward flow. What's the next subtopic? The next one is kind of related to what I said about space and time. Space is three-dimensional. And I say that because we tend to forget this when you are planning a new build of any kind, you're usually working with plans. And a plan is actually a real um, a term for a kind of drawing, which is looking at things from above, right? With a plan view, you've got your building, you cut into the building horizontally, lift off the top and look in. And that's kind of this aerial view of the space. And when you're looking at things in plan, it's easy to forget that you've got space underneath and on the walls above the actual equipment that you're working with. So if you remember that space is 3D, you can start saying, oh yeah, I can can use space underneath for storage. I mentioned those sheet pans, right? In a bakery. That means that the prep tables, maybe I need to tell the the people who are going to build my tabling or buy my tabling that I need tray slides underneath, or I need a place where I can roll a dolly with glassware. If I'm at a bar, I need to, to store glassware under there. Um, so I'm always thinking about how do I use the space that's underneath or above the actual line of vision on a floor plan? I was just looking at a set of plans recently, and this is a very nice facility, and they've designed this beautiful area in the back of house for uh, glass washing and storing glasses. And they haven't put anything on the walls. The walls are pristine. And I said, is this, do you want the guests to see this area? Oh, no, no, it's got a glass washer. I'm like, well, then why are we not storing stuff on these walls? Like, what are you putting paintings up there? Are you crazy? Um, Because we're trying to make the best use of the space that we've got. Love it. Awesome stuff. Um, So is there anything, get back again in that helicopter or that that jet and zoom up 30,000 feet. What what are the big items we want to hit before we start answering questions? Okay, there's a couple of other ones, and I'm going to lump them together, which is a kitchen is a dangerous place, right? So we want to try to design out the potential for injury, the potential for contamination. When I say contamination, I mean contaminating the food. Um, So you want to design the kitchen so that you can clean it. And I say that because often we design kitchens and we don't think about how we're going to clean them until later. And we end up with difficult little corners or equipment that has nooks and crannies that are really hard to clean. Um, We don't think about cleaning the hood, the things that need to be done to keep that place sanitary. Sanitary sounds so, you know, un-restaurant-y. It sounds very clinical. But we need to keep our guests safe and we need to keep our employees safe. We have to remember also that employees are human. They're going to make mistakes. You, You talked about bumping into each other, right, in a tight kitchen. You know, people are carrying hot things and, you know, holding things over their head saying, behind is probably not the safest thing. So can we design a kitchen that limits the potential, or I should say reduces the potential for injury, either when employees come into contact with things they shouldn't like hot things, 
or employees hurting themselves by slipping and falling or those the number of things that can go wrong in a kitchen are, are legion. So there are design tricks of the trade that we can do to help keep employees from getting hurt and also keep them healthy because this is a lot of repetitive motion. And if you haven't designed things well, if things are too high or too low, or they have to pivot the wrong way, you're going to have employees with knee problems, back problems, and it's nobody's uh, benefit if that's the case. So I would say those principles, forward flow, space is 3D, and design for keeping people and food safe. All right. I'm going to try to pull back some layers. What are some, when you were thinking of a, uh, a space and you're designing it to keep it clean, right? What are some of the things people do with it that get them in trouble, like with making hard to clean areas? Like what are the, the some of the simple things you can do just to make cleaning easier? Casters are your friend. Say that one more time. <laughs> Casters are your friend. A caster is a wheel that's on prep tables and equipment and so on, you will pay a little bit more. And I'm not talking about very much, a little bit more when you buy stuff that has casters on it. And we'll talk about casters on the cooking line and stuff when we talk about equipment selection in a couple of workshops. But if you can't move it, you won't move it. (laughs) And so if you don't move it, stuff starts to accrete, right? Kitchens are full of ingredients and ingredients attract critters. And now we've got a problem. So casters, for sure, whenever humanly possible. Another one is people tend to um, uh, have equipment that doesn't join properly. In other words, they buy a piece of equipment from this manufacturer and then a separate piece of equipment from that manufacturer and they put them all together on the line and they don't quite align because they're from different companies. And so you get little cracks and things stick out and so the stuff gets in there. Um, the wrong materials, you know, you try to save money and you put the wrong material on your floor and you can't keep it clean to save your life. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you see kitchens that are designed with the intent to be able to clean and, and it just becomes so obvious. Like you could literally just see like there's a drain in the center, you know, of, of the, the kitchen. Everything, there's a slope to make sure everything goes down there. People are just like hosing things down. It goes so fast uh, and you can save yourself. You got to think about, okay, this might cost me a couple thousand dollars more right now, but how much more is it going to cost me over the next five years and in, in, in labor hours to, to, to like spend more time cleaning because I don't have an easy space to clean and it's difficult, right? Like all that stuff adds up over time. Absolutely. That's a great example that, you know, where do you put a floor drain? And when you're going into an existing building, floor drains are really costly, right? Because they probably already have a concrete floor to put in a floor drain. We're talking big bucks, but oh my gosh, that could be a great investment. But this is why there's no one sort of do this every time because every condition is going to be different, And which is why you need somebody to help you with this design work. You can't do it yourself. You shouldn't do it yourself. You've got enough to worry about without trying to spec out a floor drain. Got it. And uh, again, we, we talked about one thing you can do to help keep your space cleaner. Uh, what's one trick that's not so common to keep your, play, your, your people safer? What's something that you see time and time again that people do that's inherently just dangerous that we can easily prevent? Putting the fryer in the wrong place. Give me uh, an example of what that looks like. Okay. Again, a teaser for what we're going to talk about with equipment selection and also layout. Um, if you're going to have a burn, it's probably going to be on a fryer. And a lot of people don't realize that when you work with a fryer, it's you're lifting up a basket possibly that's dripping with hot fat. And if you don't have the right sort of configuration to your line, that hot fat can either burn the person who's working on the fryer or the person who's working adjacent. It can 
uh, you can get little spots of grease flying through the air and either getting all over the floor in front of the fryer, which means now that's a really slippery location. And the last place you want to slip and fall is right in front of a fire, uh, a fryer, right? Nasty place to fall down. Or you can have little bits of oil flying through the air and ending up catching fire somewhere else. So fryer placement, again, this is why, again, I say I'm single because I could talk all day about where to put your fryer. But that is one of the things a well-designed kitchen is a safer one if I've thought about what's happening with that fat and how is it being drained when it's time to fit, uh, swap out that fat. Can we do that in a way that keeps people safe too? Because more injuries happen with clearing out the fat than you would possibly imagine. Awesome. Anything we have not discussed yet today that you want to drop on us? Oh, good heavens. Um there are probably the, the place I would focus on is back to this idea of looking at kitchens and restaurants that you admire. There is enormous value in learning from people who know what they're doing. And that's partially why you're part of this network, right? That's a teaser. One more break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to wrap things up and to take some Q&A. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Did you know that in 2020, the number of people using ordering and delivery services surged by 30%? And as a restaurant owner, it's crucial to have the ability to meet guests where they are. And that's where Pop Menu comes in. Pop Menu gives restaurant owners the tools they need to transform their online presence, simplify ordering and delivery, and take control of marketing. Pop Menu will build your restaurant a website that's designed to engage guests. Pop Menu allows you to showcase your menu with featured photos and reviews, which means it's time to ditch those boring PDFs. But Pop Menu is so much more than just online menus. It is the simple and efficient way to streamline your ordering experience. Each pop menu site is built with an in-house delivery option to open more revenue streams and greet guests wherever they want to eat. This means no more phone orders or losing commission to third-party apps, and you can easily set up curbside pickup and contactless ordering, plus pop menus remarketing tools enable you to build long lasting relationships with your guests. You can now send automated smart messages based on past orders, or you can send special offers to incentivize new orders. Trust me, pop menu will take your restaurant to the next level. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month. Plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at pop menu.com slash unstoppable one more time for good measure pop menu.com slash unstoppable today's episode is brought to you by talk to the manager look nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face that's just the way people choose to communicate and there's not much we can do about it or is there talk to the manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that talk to the manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people 
do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard. And talk to the manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus, with talk to the manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant's service, product, or facility. Your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve. Using talk to the manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use talk to the manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. We're back, and you just dropped one more uh, tip on us, the significance of having somebody to go to. Uh, I don't think you use the word mentor, but having is that basically what you're getting to or getting at? Well, a mentor or just visit kitchens. Most restaurants owners are very, very nice and friendly and proud of their operations. And so if you know a restaurant that you admire for whatever reason, it doesn't have to be the same concept as yours. It could be just a place that you think does a great job. You know, see if they'll let you tour the back of house. Obviously, don't go during service. That would be crazy. But most places are like, sure, you can do that. And you can learn so much just walking around and getting ideas of of how they've done stuff. What kind of questions should you be asking? I always ask the two things, which is, what do you like about this kitchen? What do you not like about this kitchen? I think if you ask that question, like, what would you do differently about the space? That's, and those are pain points. People are like, oh my God, if I just hadn't had foresight, I would have put this over there. I would all these things that you would have never considered because you haven't lived it. They start just like dumping out, like just like little tricks, little conveniences that you would have never otherwise considered. I think, yeah, what would you, what don't you like about the space is a great question. What else? We'll always start with the positive. What do you like? Yeah. Because that's important too. If you if you focus on what the, what's not working, it, yeah, it's a little bit of a dial. But if you start to you know this is really an amazing. I always say something like this is amazing that you know how many how many covers are you doing out of this kitchen on a typical Friday night or your biggest night or whatever the the time period that makes sense. And then what do you like about this kitchen? What what do you not like about this kitchen? Um, and then what advice do you have for me? Because it's just go ahead and ask, what advice do you have for me? If I'm going to start a, a venture when it comes to the kitchen itself, what advice do you have? And that you never know what you're going to hear. It could be something like, oh, make sure you buy this particular brand or make sure you don't do this. Those three questions are all you need. Yeah. Uh, what about like, and I think you kind of alluded to this when you first brought it up, but how, what, let's go a little bit deeper when you're approaching somebody to ask, like, what's good practice in asking? I would just say I am new to this business or I'm a new entrepreneur. Um, I've eaten in your place and had a great experience. Um, I'm really interested in just learning more about how your back of house works. See what I can learn from that. Um, would there be a convenient time for me to stop by and just have a look? And maybe there's somebody in your kitchen could just walk me through it. That would be great. And I have never had someone say no. I mean, is it weird to offer like free labor? Do you almost like do a stage? Like where can I come in and... You don't need to do that. No, You don't need to do that. I mean, I I would start with just I'm I'm learning and uh, I'm really... I've had a great experience. Always, you know, give them some kind of attaboy. Like, you know, I really... I admire you if I I want to... I admire your restaurant or I saw you were featured in this thing or you spoke on the podcast and I really enjoyed hearing you... Um, I would just love to to see your back of house and learn from that. You know, can we set up a time that works with someone in your operation? So you're not implying it has to be them. 
right? Mm. Because they might be really busy. And in my experience, I've never had anyone say no. And usually they're like, oh yeah, sure. I would love it. And they give you tons of great information, and but you know, always approach it from learning perspective. Yeah. And p- all these people who are at the top were once where you were at some point, they know what it's like to not know. And they, and they know how grateful they would have been if they had somebody to show them. So I, I think you'd be surprised at the, how many people are willing, like you said, to you never had anybody say no. So don't be shy. Don't be shy. Just be, you know, cognizant of when they're likely to be really busy. So if you know this is a bakery, don't say, I'd like to come in at eight in the morning, right? That's not a good time. But, you know, depending on the operation, usually sort of early morning or mid afternoon are generally the best times. Um, but you don't want someone to come in just for this. So don't say, oh, I'll come in on a day the restaurant's closed because they may not want to come in that day. But be respectful and cognizant of what works best for that restaurant. But I think people will be very generous with their knowledge. And it's, it's fun. I've seen stuff that I would never have dreamed of. Um, and I'm, you know, scribbling notes. And, um, you know, sometimes because I'm academic, they might tell me more stuff than they normally would. But you'll still learn a lot. Awesome. I've loved this conversation. I don't want to cut you short, though. Anything that I, you want to get out before we start to answer questions? Just... Ask questions. Ask, ask, ask. Do not get this sort of feeling like I'm supposed to know this. So if I don't ask, I'll sound stupid. Or if I do ask, I sound stupid. Ask the question. I mentioned about going to a site with somebody else. That is not just for beginners. That's for anybody. It's always valuable to have a second set of eyes. It's always valuable to ask the question. It never will hurt you. So ask as many questions as you can. Beautiful. All right. So this is a live recording. We do have some questions that have already felt fallen into the chat section. Uh, Wes, if you're still with us, you can go ahead and ask your question and unmute your mic. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Wes. Hey, how are you again? Nice to, to see your name and hear your voice. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> there you go. I'm parked now, so I can oh. cut on a video. Uh, the I had a question. Um, I had to dip out for a little bit, so I don't know if you already covered it. But the we were talking about your percentages for front of house to back of house and thirty to fifty percent. Um, we went through a couple edge cases, and the answer is it depends. But would you include a bar into uh, that space if you're counting that as uh, your your sort of thirty percent, or would that be uh, on top of it. That's an awesome question. And it sounds counterintuitive, but I don't include the bar and back of house, the actual bar itself, unless it is a service bar and the guest doesn't see it. So if you have a okay, bar fine. out in the dining room or out in the public space, I don't worry about the space behind the bar where the, the bartenders are standing. I don't consider that part of the kitchen. I consider that part of the front of the house. But the storage for that bar that's elsewhere, like a, maybe you have a keg walk-in or you've got a wine storage room or that's back of house. Same thing for a cafe with cafe equipment and other things. Yes. And that sounds counterintuitive, but it, it usually with a cafe that the, the sort of the service area is in the public view. 
And even though the public doesn't stand there, I consider it public space because we furnish it differently. And in some cases, it's even built by a different part of your construction team. Not to go down a, a rabbit hole, but when you're doing the construction contract, there is usually a subset of the contract for kitchen equipment and a subset for what's called millwork, which is the custom work that gets done out front, like counters and garbage dumps and that kind of thing. And so for contract purposes, we treat them differently. Okay. What about, Go ahead. Uh, I was, I was just contemplating. Those are great points. I love it. Uh, another question would be, um, so we have a concept, but we're going to, uh, with a board game cafe, which we've talked about off air, the, um, so we'll have an area that's more retail oriented. Would you uh, sort of intentionally remove that from your percentages? Are you really going to focus on your sort of seating area as compared to your um, back of house? Well, um I guess if the retail area requires any back of house support, i.e. storage, then I need to take that into account with my back of house percentage. If it doesn't, um, then you may end up with back of house that's a little bit below that 30% if that retail area is large. But, you know, you, you have a very unique concept. Um, so, you know, when you talk about edge cases, you're an edge case too, but I would start, I would start with saying 30% of your space is back of house. And if you end up in the planning process, being able to shave that a bit, great. But I wouldn't start from a position of it being less than 30 just to protect yourself. Um, because it's amazing the things, you know, again, storage for your retail, you know, you get some cases of games in and you don't want to keep them in the retail. So they need to live somewhere. Um, broken furniture, you know, that needs to live somewhere. Um, those kinds of things. Yeah. It's easy when you're talking about a restaurant and you say back of house to think about food prep and other things, but that's not just the case. So great. Um, those are some of my off the top questions. Thank you. Wes. Appreciate it. And Suzanne, uh, Susan, Suzanne, Suzanne, Suzanne. (laughs) <laughs> your question as well go ahead and ask hi good morning yeah this has been really great um when you were talking about cleaning and um that really got me thinking in terms of kind of the ideal flooring material for the kitchen mm-hmm. and i'm i'm really close to that point for my build out so i'm very curious what you would um what you would recommend well there there's three choices and i'll to do them in order of price okay the the least expensive is what that's called. I'm going to use a brand name here, Ultra. It's vinyl sheeting, which comes in big, wide sheets. It's not the little tiles like you'd put in a house. Sure. Don't, don't do that. Bad, bad. <laughs> but um, the Ultra flooring, it's vinyl sheeting that is welded where the two seams meet. And okay. you, the nice thing about Ultra is, and I'm sure there are other brands. So I'm going to make notes. So, yeah. so A L T R O. Um, and they do not pay me to say these things. But <laughs> the nice thing about this stuff is you can you can bring it along the floor and then you can wrap it up the walls. You know, it's it's vinyl sheeting. The the thing about Ultra though, if you're moving things around a lot, like if you are a big uh production kitchen and you're moving very heavy carts full of stuff, mm-hmm. it can tear. But if you're a small operation, Ultra is great because as I said, it's it, it you can sort of create a seamless 
as long as it's well installed and it comes in lots of pretty colors for what it's worth. Um, so if you have an open kitchen and you want the floor to look great, Ultra mm-hmm. is a good choice. So that's, that's your least, uh, I won't call it cheap, but it's your least expensive option. The next level up is something called a poured epoxy floor. Mm-hmm. And by poured, I mean like pouring stuff yep. out of it. Yep. Right? Poured epoxy is incredibly strong. Um, it's only as good as the person who installs it. So it will last a long, long time. It's really nice to keep clean. Um, again, you, can, you can't really bring it up the sides very well because it's, it's goopy, mm-hmm. but it creates a seamless floor. But if the installer doesn't do a good job, you get ridges and you get grease and stuff in those ridges or carts go over the bowl. Also, if you have floor drains and it's not well installed, you'll end up with puddles instead of the water going to the floor drain. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure you have an excellent installer if you do port mm-hmm. epoxy. And it's a little more expensive than the Altro, but it's a installer that's nationwide. Oh, sorry, I overspoke you. Um, yeah. Is there an installer that's nationwide that you can recommend? Is there? Oh, yeah. These are all local. It's like any contractor; they're they're local. So you want to, when you're selecting, if you've gone with Port Epoxy, um, ask to see an installation that they've done before. Um, and here's another thing you can bring in your kit: is bring a marble. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not a not a small one. It'll go down the drain. But you know, bring a bring a large ball bearing or a marble and uh, roll it and see how good a job they actually did is done. Okay. So so you've got ultra with the low end, poured epoxy, and then at the top end is quarry tile. Quarry like a quarry full of rock. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to install. It lasts forever. And if it's well installed with good grout, you can really keep it clean and you can beat the heck out of it. You can go in there with acid. Right. And whereas ultra over, if you're pouring acid all over the floor, like, you know, and you might say acid, who uses acid? It's a kitchen. Vinegar is acid. Tomato sauce is acid. Um, So I would say for a small restaurant that's just getting started, explore ultra. If you can find a good installer. Um, The other nice thing is it goes in fast. Poured epoxy, you, it takes a while to set by a while. I mean, days. So Mm -hmm. when build out, you put the floor down and you can't do anything for like two or three days. And that can be a real hassle. Quarry tile takes more time to install as well. Ultra, they can do it in a day. And then you can go right in there and start putting in equipment and walking around and doing stuff. Fantastic. Thank you. That's so helpful. You're welcome. Akash, I see your question. Uh, Feel free to ask it. Also, uh, Suzanne, I put the link to Ultra floors right there. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, hi, Stephanie. Hi, Akash. Right, um, so my question is, uh, when creating a space for a pop-up, like, what are some of the things that you take into consideration? Or uh, what are some of the things you prioritize over others? Well, with a pop-up, your biggest challenge is utilities, right? Because if it's a temporary kitchen, um the equipment that we use in commercial kitchens, of course, is going to be very different from what you'd use at home. So you can't assume that you're going to have the right utilities and the right connections. You, you got me an opportunity to say gas manifold again. Yay. Thank you. Um, so does it have the space that you want to do your pop-up in? Does it have the utilities that will support the equipment you want to use? Um, that's the first one. Ventilation is another one, which I guess arguably you could say is a utility, but 
there are rules about what you have to put underneath a ventilation hood. And I'm using the term hood here. And if you're an engineer, you can start taking, you know, say, oh my God, that's not the right word to use in this context. But generally, if it, if the equipment you're using generates grease laden vapor, it needs to be under a hood. So for pop-ups, a lot of people use induction because their argument is, oh, there's no grease laden vapor, which is, may I say a bad word? It's BS because the grease laden vapor is coming off the food you're cooking on the induction range, right? So there is grease laden vapor, but for some reason in some jurisdictions, they're like, yeah, no problem. Induction is fine. So do you need ventilation for your equipment? Does it have the right utilities? Um, sanitation and code. So things like the availability of hand sinks, you know, are you going to be inspected? You have to assume that if you're serving food to the public, you have to comply with health codes. Even if you're a pop-up and you're not expecting an inspector to show up, they could. And you really don't want to be in a position where you don't have the sanitation facilities to say, I'm doing this in a way that's safe. So hand sinks and the correct handling of garbage and all that hoo-ha. Um, so that's why a lot of pop-ups use uh, uh, portable kitchens, you know, trucks, because you can build all that stuff into the truck and just drive it wherever you need to go. Um, or a pop-up goes into an existing restaurant kitchen because that stuff's already in place. But if you're trying to do a pop-up in the lobby of an art museum or something, that's where you run into some challenges because you won't have those facilities. Awesome. Uh, Akash, follow-up question before we move to the next? Um, no, I'm good for now. Awesome. Thank you for the question. Uh, and Wes, I see that you came in with a, a follow-up to, I think, what was Suzanne's question. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, kind of it, we're down to concrete. So there's been some talks about brushed con or stained concrete and uh, which leads into more questions about mats and other things for knee savers. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, it is the cheapest flooring, stained concrete. Um, and if you are not dealing with a lot of acidic stuff, it's probably fine. Um over time, acids will eat into the concrete and you'll have all kinds of, of trouble. Um, you will want mats for sure. My recommendation, if you're going to have mats, um, the mats should be something you can either take apart and put through the dishwasher or that you can easily hose, which means you need a hose bib uh, and a good drain somewhere either at a loading dock or receiving area where you can take those mats. And then how am I going to get them there? Do I have to drag them through the kitchen? How big are the pieces I have to drag? This is back to this idea of, of sort of a forward flow, which is there is a cycle to those mats, right? They should be cleaned every day if you're going to have a nice sanitary kitchen. Um, so how do you do that? So you can get these mats that, that sort of snap together or, or connect together and you can put the pieces through a dishwasher. Um, yeah, that yeah. might that might be a good thing for you as opposed to the you know bigger mats that you have to take out and hose off. Um, if you are putting mats behind a bar, I'm a big fan of the mats with the bigger holes. And I'm making a, a little symbol here for those of you listening. I'm sort of making a circle with my hand about an inch or so wide because you're going to get things like lemon slices and, and uh, lime wedges and stuff falling on the floor behind a bar. And if there's holes in the mat, those will go in the holes and not be slippery. Same thing with ice. A piece of ice will just fall into those holes. So behind a bar, I like the mats that have the, the circles, the, the holes in them and the big ones. And in a kitchen, I like mats that I can take apart and run through DMO or take apart 
into pieces that are small enough to easily get to a place I can hose them off. Okay. Stephanie, I'm all about specific recommendations if you have any, because that kind of helps us find trusted brands. That's one of the things I'm trying to do here. Do you yeah, I don't, I don't know Matt brands off the top of my head um, because, you know, back to the, the question about uh, that Wes had about the, the front of house areas, Matt's fall under a different contract than what we do in construction. They're part of small wares. Remember I mentioned small wares are things that go through the dishwasher. So as a, a commercial kitchen designer, we don't actually specify, we don't actually in, get involved in the mats and choosing them. We just say, these are the features they need to have and tell people go buy them. So I don't know any brands on top of my head, but flooring, we do specify. So that's why I knew the, the brand of Ultra. Beautiful. Uh, Wes, did I cut you short? Uh, just sort of continuing down that train, we talked about flooring. What about walls? Again, you've got several layers of cost. So the least expensive thing is epoxy paint. Epoxy paint is your friend because it's inexpensive. Uh, it's very strong. Not regular paint. You need epoxy paint. The epoxy paint is stinky and like epoxy glue. You're mixing two things together when you apply it to a wall. Um, it takes longer to dry. So it does have a little bit of delay, but it's really, you can scrub the heck out of it. And so that would be my first, if you have, you know, concrete block walls, or even if, if they're um, drywall that can handle moisture, like the kind of drywall you'd put in the bathroom, that's the cheapest way to go, but epoxy paint for sure. Um, the next level up is probably tile, um, subway tile, or uh, I would never put linoleum tile or vinyl tile on walls. That's not a good idea because it's, they're not designed to be vertical. They're designed to be horizontal. Um, but ceramic tile, um, the thing about ceramic tile is if you're doing a lot of moving around of carts and things, or you have a lot of things on casters, which I mentioned is a good idea, you'll need some bumpers so that things aren't bashing into that tile and cracking it. Um, and then if you have money to spend, fiberglass panels are great. Uh, you will see these in big production kitchens. Uh, I had the, the wonderful opportunity to tour kitchens in France. Um, and if you, by the way, if you ever have to go to the hospital, France is the place to do it because not only do they have amazing food service in French hospitals, but they'll serve you wine <laughs> in your hospital bed, which I just think is awesome, depending on if, what you could do. But they use fiberglass panels uh, on the walls in their kitchens. Um, and those are amazing because you can hose them. It's like what you put on the side of a boat. Um, and it's, uh, extremely resilient, um, and easy to clean, but eh, pricey. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Stephanie. I think we've come to the end and I, I know, uh, um, as a little teaser, we do have, this is a three part series. So Stephanie is coming back. Um, actually as this episode goes live next week, uh, you'll be able to catch this and hear about what, what's coming and be able to join us for the next two weeks. And you're going to be covering uh, in part two, design layout, uh, top tips, basically what goes where. So we're going to get into a lot more detail with a lot of the stuff. Uh, so we'll, we'll be able to answer more questions is what I'm getting at. And then the part three will be equipment, uh, specific equipment. So we're probably going to get into, again, a lot of the stuff that you're asking right now. So we're going to just some teasers there. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to get even uh, deeper, and I think you're the, the plan uh, you can, why don't you go ahead and give us a teaser of what your plan is for the next two uh, sections parts? 
Sure. So the the next section, I'm going to talk about all parts of the kitchen in order. So we'll talk about storage. Um, you know, how do you select a walk-in? What are the things to look for? Um, what are you about shelving? What's the best thing to do there and different kinds of shelving? Um, we'll talk about how, uh, the equipment that you need in both the prep and the production areas. So Akasha's question about, you know, pop-ups and, and considerations, I'll get more into ventilation and, and you know, there's, there's a lot to know, but Mostly, I want you to have enough knowledge that you can make good choices and not so much knowledge or not so much information that you're like, oh, my God, this is so geeky. I want you to be informed consumers of the kitchen equipment dealers and the contractors work. And so we'll be talking about that kind of stuff. And then the last one is you do have to make choices about what equipment you're going to buy. So we'll talk about what to look for, how to to decide whether you want to buy used or new should you lease your equipment? And just some handy hints about when you're buying equipment, it's kind of like buying a car. What kinds of features should you spend the money on and which ones are a waste of your resources? Yes. And uh, just the dates on those will be Thursday, January 20th. And then the part three will be uh, Thursday, January 27th, both at 10 a.m. And um, and just for you guys as a teaser of what I want to do in 2022 is I really want to pay close attention to what my guests are recommending. And I want to start going to these products and services and tools that are organically being recommended to us and inviting them into the network to say, teach us more. We want to take it to the next level. So uh, I'm paying attention and we're going to be pulling back the layers and the lessons that Stephanie is teaching us as we go. Uh, so I think we can say from there, uh, thank you. Um, I also want to let our listeners know that you do offer coaching, one-on-one coaching. Do you want to let us know if, if we have I any do. questions, how can we connect with you? Yeah. Um, I don't design anymore. So I just want to be very clear. I coach. In other words, I will look at the design that somebody else has done and give you feedback, or I will help you figure out the questions to ask. Um, the best way to reach me is just send me an email at my address, which is skr4 at cornell.edu. So skr 4 at cornell.edu. Um, and uh, I have an hourly rate. We can talk about that or we can talk about a fixed fee, whatever works for you. But I want to be clear, I don't design anymore. I'm too old. There's only so much walking around with uh, rebar and magnets and, and marbles that an old lady can do. And I will say that Stephanie does pay me a commission. Uh, so if you do schedule time with her, you're also supporting this podcast. And thank you very much much. So I think we can conclude today's episode. We'll see you back here in two weeks for part two and then three weeks for part three. And like always, I got to say it, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. What did I tell you? I I mean, I I said this was going to be a great episode and it was. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on. If you guys found yourself... uh, thinking like, man, I wish I was able to make this. I wish I was a part of this conversation. I have so many questions around this topic. Well, guess what? This was just part one of a three-part workshop. Stephanie will be live in the network next week, a week from today on January 20th at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And part three 
will be two weeks from today, January 27th, again at 10 a.m. Eastern. And I really want you guys to be a part of these conversations. And normally, uh, these are these conversations are just reserved for network members only. But because I feel like this is such a hot topic, and because I know a lot of you listening to the show are in this stage of design and planning, and you're, you're still in that dreaming mode, a lot of you can find value in these conversations. So what I want you to do is email me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. That's E R I C at restaurantunstoppable.com. And tell me that you want to be a part of the conversation. What I'll do is I'll share a 30 day trial link with you. So you can join us for the rest of this workshop. And we, we actually have a lot of great things, a lot of great workshops lined up in the next 30 days. So not only will you be able to join us for part two and part three of the kitchen design and layout, we also have David Helbrin joining us who is a well-known, well-regarded lawyer in New York City. He's going to be talking about lease negotiation, again, right up your alley if you're you're still in the planning stage. And we have on the 18th, Peter Lazar, past guest on the show, author of Restaurant Strong, joining us to reflect on his episode, to answer your questions about his book, Restaurant Strong. And if you are the first 25 people to RSVP to that workshop, he's going to send you a free copy of his book. And the whole idea behind Restaurant Unstoppable Network is to let me go to work for you. I don't own a restaurant. I'm not working in a restaurant right now. That's my plan. That's my my dream. But until then, I need to know where the pain is. I need to have you guys live vicariously through me and tell me where you need the help so I can go to work for you and, and create the best podcast possible. So again, email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Get your 30-day trial to the network and be a part of the conversation. Until next time, guys, peace out.